0: the game in life uh today i have a special guest um jonathan davis uh lexington's favorite financial advisor so hey sir how you doing uh thanks for being on good to see you thank you Uh, yeah so um like i just described to you we we walk through you know sports basketball and then we connect that to life and see how it all uh, goes together and just the lessons we've learned from the game and whether that's from coaches players experiences and then how and how that um Relates to business and life and etc. So, my first question for you is: uh, I like to ask everyone, "What was your first um, introduction to the game of basketball?"
1: My first introduction to the game of basketball, uh, I probably, I'd have to say my father. I have to look, get, give you a little bit of background on that as well. My father is still probably the I think he's the second or third all time leading rebounder in small college history. Wow. I'll found that mistake back in the uh, late 60s. And he played for, you know, had a cup of coffee in the NBA with the Chicago Bulls. Nice. So I think he put a basketball in my crib. So I was always basketballs around. Yeah. Uh, after he got done playing basketball, uh, he actually became a successful high school coach and won two state championships. So basketball and players and hearing about the game was kind of always there. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, was in the background. So I can't remember a time when basketball wasn't, you know, a part of my life.
0: Yeah, have you ever talked to your father about his experience with basketball? Maybe who was the first person that put the game in his hands?
1: Uh, yes, uh, we did talk about that. As far as the first person put a game in his hands, um, he said there was a coach in his, uh, I guess, middle school, I guess they called it junior high school back in the day, uh, that saw that he, how athletic he was in other sports they were doing. And uh, that's when he first started playing. And he said he never thought of it as like a way to get out of the situation he was in. He grew up, you know, in a small town farm and thought he just he would just become a small town farmer like his father. And uh, but his junior year, um, he had a coach tell him that, you know, you know what? This basketball thing, you can get a scholarship. And that's like, what? A scholarship. And that was when the light bulb kind of, you know, went off and it really changed the whole direction, the whole course of our family history, because he went to college. He did well there, met my mother. You know, and they, you know, built a life that created, you know, uh, synergies for my brother and myself, opportunities that they were not afforded, and that will be passed down to my children and to my children's children. So, basketball is really good to our family.
0: Yeah, that's an awesome story. What time period was he in college? Over the years, he was in
1: college from uh, it would have been like sixty-four to sixty-eight, I believe. Okay, something
0: like that. Gotcha. So, I was I was trying to think think about my father. He grew up in a small town in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, sports after high school wasn't really uh wasn't really a thought. It's like people it wasn't a like, thing. Right? Yeah, played yeah. for fun and then it was over.
1: You went to work in the mines or on the farm or you know some menial job. You know that uh, was afforded to us. And also keep this in mind too: back when our fathers played, integration wasn't really a thing yet. Right? Maybe you can go to a, a PWI, but it wasn't a good idea really. And God <laughs> yeah. bless those pioneers. God bless them. You know, because if they hadn't done that, we I wouldn't be wearing this shirt right now. Right. But back when my father played, you know, like I said, early 60s, late 60s late '60s in high school, going to the University of Alabama, that wasn't a very good idea. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a good idea. So he went to Alabama State and became, you know, star there. But he could have been the first black player at Alabama if he wanted to be. But that wasn't a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's a great story. When 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 you first started playing, um, what was your experience like? And what I mean by that is, like, I remember when I first started playing basketball, it was it was almost like everything was just spinning around me because I was used to playing, you know, football and baseball. When you step on a basketball court and you got nine other people you're trying to work together with, it just seemed like everything was just jumbled up. What was your experience like? And like, how did you get better over time? Oh wow, I got a I got a great story
1: here. <laughs> First of all, like I said, with my my father having, you know, used sports as a way to get education and some things about business that put us in a better situation, you know, my brother and I, we grew up in the suburbs. Unlike him, you know, hardscrabble, you know, living on a subsistence farm. gripping the suburbs away from, you know, real serious, you know, athletes or playing ball. And uh, when well, my father decided when I was, let me see, I was nine, my brother was seven, you know, he worked downtown and he was, he still, you know, knew a lot of people in the, in the black community uh, downtown. And so he what he would do was, I mean, literally every day after school, on the weekends, he would drive us downtown to the hood. You can't do this today, <laughs> drive us downtown to the hood. I'm nine, I'm nine now, I'm a nine year old suburban kid. My brother's seven, you know, they knew who he was. So I mean, they weren't gonna bother us but still would drop us off in the hood. So I grew up playing with kids like Emmitt Smith, yeah. Roy Jones Jr. Derek Brooks. I mean, three Hall of Famers that you that you know of, and countless other guys that were just as talented as those guys were. I grew up in a pressure cooker. I grew up with guys who became Hall of Famers. So it was a make or break situation, whereby everybody was good relatively, you know, but some were better than others. And I was able to go from, like I said, not knowing you know anything all about basketball or about anything at all, to being an early. Signed in the UK. I signed in UK when I was 16. I'm too young to sign papers myself. Yeah. You know, so I went from not knowing anything at all to being able to be, you know, one of the most highly recruited players, you know, in the country at that time. So it was a, it was a unique situation that put us. My like I said, my dad put us someplace where we we almost had this. We we had no choice but to succeed. We had to make it because, like I said, those kids they were not nice to us. Yeah. You know, yeah. so by uh, being good at sports, it kept us from getting beat up. You know, it's not. Brother and I, so we both excel. My brother actually played football at Clemson and played in the NFL for the uh, uh, for the Steelers briefly, you know, so that pressure situation my father put us in, it created us. Had we stayed in the suburbs, I would have gone to a small junior college or a small college because of my height, but I would not have developed into, you know, a five star player just playing in the suburbs. Probably not.
0: Yeah, what's what's funny about what you're saying is that like the last few people that I've had on here where I ask them that question, they talk about how they grew up playing in the park and like that whole that whole world of playing in the park where you had to prove yourself and you had to be tough to be out there. Do you feel like that's missing in today's game? Or do you feel like it's too like glamorized with the um summer ball and such? Um,
1: I'm gonna reframe your question. I'm gonna say this. The the game is Changed. I mean, the world, like I said, the world that we grew up in. We can take your nine-year-old kid and drop him off in the hood. I don't. I wouldn't suggest that. I mean, I don't. I mean, it worked for us. (laughs) My dad, God bless him. I don't think you should do that. You know, the world has changed in such a respect that that route might not be available today. Yeah. Uh, as far as the commercialization of it, I think what we're seeing now is kids that develop and turn into guys that play at a high level of basketball. They're either fortunate enough to have, you know, a father or a male figure to grab them early and to do a lot of individual, individualized one-on-one training with them. Yeah. Now it's about specialized, you know, skills and drills early as opposed to, you know, that pressure cooker, drop them off in the hood and they just play all day. That, that doesn't really exist anymore for a myriad of reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, keep this in mind, too. I'm a little bit older than you, but when, when I, I'm in my 50s, so, so when I grew up, everybody played, played some kind of a sport. Now you have some kids that play sports and you got some kids that play esports. You got a lot of kids that don't really play outside with a ball at all. They do they do this all day. So the pool of kids to draw from, to play pickup games, I'm not going to say cut in half. I'm going to say it's been cut by two thirds. Right. So you have a very small amount of kids who play esports sports at all. If a kid shows some problems early, you know, somebody grabs them and puts them into a, like I said, one of these glamorized summer programs, but really that's all there is right now. And like I said, I'm not blaming anybody and I'm not trying to dive deep into the, I guess, the the psychological or, or, you know, historical reasons why that is. I'm just saying it is what it is, man. This, the ghetto superstar, that player doesn't really exist anymore and hasn't for a long time.
0: Yeah. That's a great perspective. When you – when after you played at the park, were there times where you, you like, you know, you stayed and you just played by yourself and worked on your skills by your by yourself? What did that by yourself time look like with um, with the game?
1: But going, going back to my generation, anybody who was any good at, at ball, we played 10, 12 hours a day. And most of that was by ourselves. Mm-hmm. We would go from park to park. You go to one park, maybe run there for an hour and a half, two hours. But when they were done, go to another park. You play there for two or three hours and go someplace else. I mean, so a lot, excuse me, a lot of time was spent going from, you know, like I said, from rec place to direct place to outdoors to, you know, doing all this stuff on your own. And then if you want to be really good at it, the solo, getting your shots up, working on your ball handling, that was just part of the course. It wasn't anything unusual or special about that. It's just that anybody who wanted to be good at it, that's what you had to do.
0: Yeah. When did you start to grow? And was your father tall? Uh,
1: yes, to both of those, uh, yeah, my father's was legit six, seven, wow. uh, and I'm, I'm right at six, eight myself, my son's six, nine, you know, so height rather than my family. Grandfather was six, four. So everybody was, you know, tall, lo- taller than average, uh, in my family. As far as when I started to grow, I never had like a super big growth spurt. I was always just a little bit taller than mm-hmm. the kids. Uh, I think the biggest spurt I had was maybe I had like a four inch growth spurt between my, uh, let me see here. I went from five, seven to six, one pretty much the summer between seventh grade and eighth grade. But really it was like, it was really just three or four inches a year for the most part. There was not really a nine or 10 inch growth spurt there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I think I told this story on another podcast, but on my mom's side of the family, it's a really tall side. Like her sister is six foot. I have a cousin that's six eleven. I have another cousin that played at Western. He's like six, eight. My brother is six, six. So like, if you go to family reunions, it's like six, five and above everywhere. So all through high school, I was like, I can't wait to it's my time. <laughs> That's what I was saying. I thought I was the next in line. I thought I was the chosen one. And uh, so all through high school, I just kept waiting for my growth spurt, you know. But uh-huh. it never, never came. I, I too went from five seven to six one and never stopped. I mean, I just mm-hmm. stopped right there. I, I, I topped out. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, how was so? You're from Florida, Pensacola, Florida, right? Yes. Okay. What was um. What was your high school career like, and talk about your um recruiting process, because I know you said you signed early, so what yeah. um, how did that form? May take me way back high school career
1: first of all, I grew up in the Pensacola Panhandle, which I don't know how much you know about football, but football wise that is like the mecca of getting football players. We produce at the time I don't know how I don't know how it is right now, but back when I was in high school, we had I think like six or seven high schools in town. I'm not making this up. We produce something like 40 or 50 D1 players every year from seven high schools. That is absolutely insane. All those super stud teams you saw back in the 90s, you know, Florida, Florida State, they all had Pensacola starters. Miami, they had kids at Pensacola that started for every every team in the top 20. It was a crazy, crazy time. Like I said, Amos Smith, as great as he was, I mean, he, he wasn't, I can make this make sense. He wasn't the only one I'm trying to say. He's the one everybody knows of because he had this Hall of Fame career. But trust me, we were absolutely loaded football wise. And I say that to say this. My first high school experience, they were so football heavy and it wasn't just this school, but it got there was something else that happened there that that that, that affected me. Uh, Most of the high schools in in this part of Florida as well. Every uh, boy's high, every every boy's uh, high school uh, P class is football practice. I'm, wow. I'm not joking you were yeah. divided up by position and your class schedule was formed around when you practice football so your rangy athletic you know skill position players will have a you know one PE class your bigger bulkier you know liming type of kids will have another p that was your pe class was wow. learning football which is probably another reason why kids that came out of that part of florida were ready to start in college they won because they practice football literally year round. I said, I wanted to say this. My dad didn't like that. I mean, football's fine. He didn't mind football. But the problem was that my high school coaches saw football potential in me and they were pushing me to play football and were, actually pre- were preventing me from doing basketball stuff because they wanted me to f- totally focus on football. So I had to transfer and change high schools between my freshman and sophomore year because where I was at was a football powerhouse that was football, 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 football. And I could barely play basketball. I mean, basketball was just like an afterthought, something you did, you know, just when I mean, you weren't doing football stuff. So I changed high schools, had a pretty good career. Uh, once I left that school, I went to a school that, you know, I wouldn't say there were uh, necessarily a football emphasis, a basketball emphasis school, because this, the school subsequently won this. They won the state twice and were national champions in football, you know, yeah. right after I left. So they, had, they were football school as well, but they, they, they allowed me to play basketball and they didn't force me to play football at the second school I had a pretty good career there uh, the camps though is what really made me I was fortunate enough to go to a camp that didn't exist anymore it was called the um, oh gosh daughter I can't remember what it was called it, it was in Millageville, Georgia and it was the camp where guys like Dominique uh, Wilkins and then made their name uh, mm-hmm. at, at this particular camp but also I went there and I remember that but my very first day there I was you know a kid from a football hotbed, never really been around a lot of big-time basketball players. And uh, they divided us up, and we had our coaches assigned to us. And my coach did me the best favor in the world that ever helped me. He scared me to death my very first game. He says, look, you're going up against against this kid. He's a number five player and such and such. And, you know, he destroys everybody. He's going to eat you alive. And it scared me so bad. It put me into a a fight-or-flight type situation. I destroyed that guy. I mean, I literally ate him hair and all. But because I, I was scared of being, you know, I was scared of being eaten by him. I ate him instead. Yeah. And from that game forward, my my like I said, my trajectory just kind of took off from there. And I became a, a national known player based off that one camp. You know, so that's kind of what got me on the got me on the radar for schools like Kentucky to start, you know, coming wanting to visit and get wanting to follow me around. And you know, before it was over, I, I met all those big time coaches from the, you know, from the late 80s that were, you know looking for players. And I met Eddie Sutton and, and he came to visit at the house. And uh, I guess the rest is history. He took me on a private jet, flew to Kentucky. I never, I never went back. Yeah. I, was just, I was gone. <laughs>
0: yeah. Wow. So, you know, basketball is such a game of confidence. And so you're saying after that first game, when you destroyed that guy, your confidence yeah. kind of just skyrocketed through the yeah, roof. It. And then you it's just want to Could have gone another
1: way, man. So easy. Like I said, I'm a kid from the suburbs. Didn't have that hard, you know, tough, ghetto exterior it was i was more for a more fragile kid but because i had a very good first experience i was able to leverage that into you know a whole career pretty much
0: yeah what i love about the game of basketball is i think about just like the emotions that go behind it and i'm thinking about you at the camp and like you're from the suburbs you all these kids you're not used to around all these you know high profile basketball players and you're probably shooting around warming up looking around at the other guys that are shooting around warming up and I just remember all those emotions at camp and at just different situations with the game of basketball even like that first day of open gym with the college team you know I mean you're trying to size guys up and I think um, there's something about that that's beautiful about the game like in the moment you're nervous you're fight or flight you don't want to be embarrassed but when you look back on it you realize like how stepping into those situations actually like makes you a better player once you're able to face those first nerves and feel first nerves and feelings behind it. Um, so once, so you committed pretty much after that private jet experience. And, um, and I think I was thinking about your UK career, how would you describe your two, your UK tenure? Because you, you also played for two coaches that I want to, I want to talk about in a little bit. I did, and I had a very
1: rocky experience uh, at UK. Again, I have great love and great affinity for the university itself. And, you know, I'm actually still living here in Lexington. I've never left Fayette County. Yeah. I've been here for 30, I guess, 36 years now. But as far as bas, from a purely basketball standpoint, there are many guys that have much better, I guess, experiences on the court than I did. Uh, Eddie Sutton had a diff- much different style of play than Patino. And my game, you know, was slow to, I guess, get acclimated to the way that, you know, Patino wanted me to play. It was just so different. And again, going also going back to, you know, me being a kid that at that time was a bit more emotionally fragile. And also, I'm gonna just say the quiet part aloud: I didn't need basketball. Yeah. And a lot of a lot a lot of coaches at that level they want kids, they seek out kids who are desperate and that need that sport, and they're able to, I guess, treat them in a way to where. Um, Communication, this, I'm, again, I'm going back in time. It's probably not quite as bad now, but there's still some things to be fixed. Back in that time, though, coaches didn't really have to communicate with a kid. Coaches pretty much were just kind of a my way or the highway kind of thing. And with communication being, you know, not great and or really being very one-sided, uh, you know, as far as coaches and players back then, I struggled with figuring out what my role even was. Yeah. You know, I'm a kid that's very analytical. I want to think. I want to talk things out. And it's, you know, just march down the hill and go towards the enemy. That's not really my style, yeah. you know. And from that perspective, you know, even though I might have had might have had some some skills that were that were unique and that, you know, uh, were uh, better that, that could have been utilized uh, for whatever reason. Like I said, he, he really wanted to get kids that were really more of a, I'm, I'm a point towards the enemy. You guys run towards there and don't ask me any questions. And, you know, from that perspective, I didn't get to play a whole lot. And I had some injuries as well, but that wasn't all of it. But that, was, that was part of it. So my encore experience, I didn't get a lot of playing time. I just did not. But it wasn't because I wasn't talented enough. It wasn't because I didn't know how to play. It was because he wanted a certain kind of kid. And, again, back in this time, coaches recruited for their style more so than trying to figure out, how can I take this kid and make him successful? That wasn't really part of their game back their bag at all.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and something and, else, uh, something else, something else I, need, I need to say this on the record too. Something else that's unique is that he knew that, you know, talk about Patino, he treated me so poorly that about 10 years later, he actually apologized to me. He would never right. say it in public. Yeah. He actually apologized about how he treated me because he knew that I wasn't right. And he knew that I was the kind of person that needed more guidance than what he gave me.
0: Yeah.
1: And he, he needed absolution, you know, for himself. anyway he, what he, what, what he did wasn't right.
0: Yeah. Did you, when, when you were that age, did you know that about yourself, that you needed that guidance, or was that something that kind of clicked later on once you thought a bit more about your experience? Cam, I didn't have
1: the words for it, but I knew, I knew that I needed more guidance than that. I, obviously, as an adult, I can look at that situation through adult eyes as opposed to child's eyes. Keep this in mind, too. Even though the guys that play college basketball are huge, and maybe some of them have mustaches, those are children, Cam. You know this now. Yeah. But at the time, we think we're growing no. up. Those are kids. Those are 17, 18, 19, the 21 year olds. Those are still children. Those are still people that are growing and developing and trying to figure out their place in the world. And no matter how big and how tough they are on the inside, there's a lot of missing pieces there that you know could be um, utilized for good or for evil. You know, for black or better expression. And I was fortunate that you know while I was at school, I decided to go to school. And I got a degree and I learned some things that have helped me in business. And also the adversity that I was, you know, put through doing a whole experience has helped me in business to persevere and to, you know, I know it has, has, has helped me to get to where I am, you know, off the court. Because there are guys that uh, I will not call any names, but there are guys that I played with. who have had big careers, scored a bunch of points that have, you know, fallen on a hard time. And some of them have needed me, you know, for other reasons outside of basketball. Right. I've been able to help, you know, help some of them. You know, so the sports thing it doesn't last very long. You're going to play for maybe eight or nine years tops, you know, if you're lucky. But for the most part, it's the things, the skills and tools that we learn that can translate into some kind of other kind of life. Those are the guys that are going to be most successful when they're done playing ball. Absolutely. And unfortunately, too many, too many of us don't don't grasp that till it's too late.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You said something else that I wanted to touch on. So you said that, you know, in the back of your mind, you knew that you didn't need basketball. And what I'm, what I'm about to frame here is that I once wrote a blog post, you know, many years ago talking about the difference between myself and maybe some, some of my friends that went on to play at the um, division one level. And what I noticed is that some of those guys treated basketball as like the end all be all, you know what I mean? But when I was going through high school and even my first couple of years in college, I knew that like, I always had the academics to fall back on. So for me, it was always like, you know, I love basketball and it's cool. But at the end of the day, I know that I'm gonna go, you know, probably full ride for, for my grades. Um, and it wasn't until like my junior and senior year of playing college basketball where I finally like flipped that dog switch almost. <laughs> um, do you think like your mindset of what well, I won't say mindset, but you know, you having that thought in the back of your mind that maybe you didn't need basketball. Did that, do you think that hurt you as well as it as it hurt me maybe
1: you know what i'm gonna hesitate
0: to say that it hurt you i'm
1: gonna i'm gonna say that put you it took you on a different path you know because you did say that at some point the dog switch slipped on for you and the same thing happened to me as well um so there are people that you know are i guess study uk basketball and from time to time it's kind of a me and they'll remember that there was a time camp when Tino's first year, that summer, we had a series of inter, inter-squad scrimmages. They split us up and trying to figure out who's going to be the player. Cam average 27 and a half points a game, the squad scrimmages. Well, like I can't play. Right. You don't score 27 and a half points a game and can't play. Yeah. But, you know, having said that, though, like I said, from a psychological standpoint, we did not mesh. And, again, as I lost confidence, my, you know, ability to be successful on the court went down. Yeah. But I – we're able to refocus that energy into, you know, making sure that I kept my grades up. And I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, go to class and able to, i able to even qualify to get into law. I went to law school for a while, you know, so I don't think it hurt you because the the, the ability to play is something that you have or you, or you don't have, you could play or you can't play. Right. Think about, think about this camp. Think about the guys you know that love basketball and played all the time. They weren't really that good. They love it. <laughs> they loved, I'm serious. They would have love to trade places with you. They yeah. weren't that good. Yeah. They weren't that good. But then you, then you also had guys who were uber talented, but barely practiced? They just could play. They just knew what they were doing. So again, I don't think that was it. I think people want to make it that it, but that's that's not it at all. And I think that hurts us as a community because you got so many kids who bank everything on, I'm gonna make it to the NBA and get us out of this situation. And you know that the chances of it happening they're just so rare that you know, I can think about just just my little quiet time at UK, one school, doing one small. T- you know, moment in history, I could think of a few guys that probably shouldn't have been in college, but Cam, there were also kids on my team that were smart, but they weren't book smart because they'd been passed through because they were good at basketball. They never really developed, uh, I guess, an an intellect, you know, that was gonna afford them a life away from what they could do on the court, you know? So they were intellectually stunted, I guess is the best way I can put that, even though they scored a bunch of points and, you know, are still, you know, revered basketball-wise. They could have done something else and their lives have not gone the way they wanted them to go. Because once the ball starts bouncing, they didn't know what to do with themselves. They didn't know how to, how to live in this world. That didn't include somebody telling them to get up at six six o'clock in the morning and go, you know, run wind sprints and then go shoot jump shots and then work on your ball handling. When that was gone, they didn't know how to fill up their day, which is sad because they have the, they have the raw ability to do better than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great comment, man. That was deep. I love that. Um, one of my one of my favorite questions I like to ask people on here is I love to talk about how opportunity and fit uh, makes this can make a player successful. Um, and I use my friend Shelvin Mack as an example. Right? I went to high school with Shelvin Mack. He went to Butler. You know, with Brad Stevens. Huh. My son also went to Butler. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, well. Yeah. Yes, I mean, so so you know the story, you know, he he goes to the national championship two years in a row, makes it to the NBA, you know, but if he maybe goes to another school, you know, let's just say Kentucky recruited him with um, Billy Gillespie. He probably doesn't make the NBA, you know what I mean? And so it's, and I know it's not about making the NBA, but I love to talk about how like fit matters and opportunity matters. And a coach that has like a vision and confidence for you matters. Cause I also like to talk to young players on this platform as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, I got a Shelby. story to tell you too. I only I, I only saw Shelby play in high school one time, and unfortunately, it was the worst game of his career. He played absolutely terrible, and I left the game thinking, "What was all the buzz about Shelby Mac?" Now, of course, he proved to the world that, like I said, given the give right, given the opportunity, and put it in the right situation, that he is, you know, a star. Like I said, it took the national, took him to the team the national championship, you know, back to back. But the one time I saw him play, he didn't play well. I couldn't figure out. You know, yeah. what was everybody so excited about? Uh, Brad Stevens, the obviously, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It must have been Brad the Stevens
0: game when we were um, regional finals against Lexington Catholic. I think yes. he really had like yes. six points, was cramping up the whole Dude, the time. He,
1: he, he barely could dribble the bat. I mean, he's like totally fell apart. And it happens. I mean, we, we all had a game where I was out there, too, yeah, to dribble. Fine. You were out there, too. <laughs> yeah, it was everybody's guys, worst the game. Was ball. I was like, what in the world? Who are these guys? They, had, they won 30 games. How are they, what are they doing out there? Yeah. Oh, man. It was everybody's worst game. <laughs> it happens, man. It does happen. You know, but like you said, fit, um, you know, like myself, I think I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, I was recruited by one coach to play back to the basket, more like a Kenny Walker style. And then the coach that came in Let me play, you know, face in the basket, more of a Jamal Mashburn style, totally different ways of playing. You know, I mean, had I, you know, had I chosen a coach, you know, I would have chosen a coach that, you know, fit, that did the things that I I was comfortable doing at at that time. So, you know, again, uh, Sheldon's a great example on the positive end, but I would guess I would be a cautionary tale for the, for the back end of that. Now, having said that again, times were different. Um, as far as like transferring schools this is something else too now everybody transfers at a job of a dime you got kids this is what i can't figure out about today's modern player kids that are starting will transfer if you're starting your coach now has nothing, nothing to do with your ability to be successful now you're on the court you have the ball in your hands basketball is a make or miss league either you're making shots or you're not making shots it's just you at that point yeah. if you're not getting to play i get that if you're not getting to play but if you're starting, why are you transfer? I can't figure that part out. Yeah. But back, because back when I played, you just didn't transfer. You might have, had, you might have five transfers nationwide. Now you have teams that have five transfers on one team. Totally different world. So transferring really was not something that you did unless it was like an emergency type situation. I, I thought about transferring back, going back home and playing for Florida State or playing for Florida, but ended up just staying in Kentucky and looking, you know, long term finishing school and building the life. And I didn't think I'd be here 37, 36, 37 years, but you know, here I am. It's kind of worked out for me.
0: Yeah. Behind the scenes, what was your father's um, influence like during your time at UK? You know, he's a, he was a successful basketball player. So what was he telling you during that time as well? He,
1: you know what? He was very hands off. I mean, you would think he'd been more hands on, but he kind of stepped back. And other than, <laughs> other than one anecdote I have to share with this, I never confronted with my dad. But my mom told me this, so I don't think my mom will lie to me. My mom says that <laughs> both my parents are deceased too, so I can tell the story. My mom told me that after Patino took the Patino took the job, my dad saw that Patino was not, you know, utilizing me in the right way. My mom says that he, my, my, that my dad called Rick and cussed him a blue streak, just cussed him out. I did notice that my, I went from being, you know, not a favorite son to being persona non grata. That would explain, you know, Rick's not even, he would even look at me for a while. Right. That, that would explain. I mean, I always forget that, yeah. you know, but other than my dad cussing Rick out, he didn't really say much about what was going on because he was a coach. And as a coach, you try to be respectful of what other coaches are doing unless it becomes ridiculous, you know. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, that's funny. Um, I feel like fathers that have played the game and of course everyone's different, but I feel like fa- at a certain point, the fathers do kind of get hands off and kind of let their kids uh, figure it out. I always feel like when I, like, when I watch my kids play in sports leagues, it's the people's parents who didn't play sports that are always down their throat and on them and probably are hands-on as possible. So that's really funny. Um, yeah. I, th- I love how you're like in your story, being at UK even though it didn't you know go as well as you wanted it to um, I love the perseverance that you're talking about and also looking you looked forward to the um you know building the life after college like you saw the bigger picture and I so I went to Asbury University and I I speak at the I speak to the team once a year I've done it ever since I graduated I go speak to the team once a year and so last year I was talking to the team about building your life after college like I was like don't waste four years here and don't make any connections don't have any internships don't have any idea of what you're doing because then you're just wasting like you're wasting your time you're wasting your money you know you're wasting the student loans that you know you might be taking out to be here um but like and maybe this can be for our community as well but like we I love to talk to people about thinking long-term and I don't know this because like I'm in the financial field. So we always talk to people every day about thinking long-term, but who was it? Like, did you have someone on the side teaching you to think long-term or was it something that you just kind of, kind of saw the writing on the wall?
1: That's a two part question. And the first part of the question is that you know my, my parents, God bless them, did a really good job of preparing both my brother and myself for life after sports. They never pushed us into sports as a end all be all. We already had escaped the ghetto and the farm that had already been done a generation before. So sports was just the way to pick your school. We were going to go to school anyway. But if you have athletic ability, you have a lot more choices because you can get a scholarship and go to whatever school you want to go to. So I brought that with me. That was not anything that I learned at UK. I brought like I said, the ability to be successful uh, in in the classroom and, and to be able to leverage that in something out of the classroom from home. So that was started, you know, when I was five years old. That's from, from John. Uh, so the second part of that question, I, I'm sorry, I got off a tangent. Yeah, that's kind of a two-part question.
0: Uh, I think the second part of the question was, um, so the first part was, who was it by your side that taught you to think long-term and did you just see the writing on the wall? So I think you answered both of them. Um, yeah. yeah. So worth the writing on the wall, I
1: mean, like I said, after we changed coaches and I knew I wasn't going to get the play the way I wanted to play. I mean, th- at that point, like I said, I, I went through the, you know, do I want to transfer and try to go someplace else? Uh, also, oh, here's something else. I didn't, I didn't mention this earlier. I, again, you're taking me back to something I hadn't thought about in a long time. R- after Rick's first year, we had an assistant coach on that team, Ralph Willard. Ralph Willard, after the second year, went and got the head coaching job at uh, Western and had a successful you know, career down there. But something that a lot of people don't know this. I don't even talk about this publicly, but I almost got traded. Rick actually tried to trade me to Western, you know, I guess the future draft picks, you know, without my consent and knowledge. And that yeah. was that was like they had out of the I'm serious because Ralph wanted, Ralph saw what I can do. Ralph didn't really have the players he wanted down there. Ralph said, I'll build a program around you. So i had, had I gone to Western, I could have got a program built around me. Yeah. But at that point, I already had pretty much resigned myself to a life without basketball. I didn't want to go someplace else and start over from scratch because I wasn't a basketball lifer. It wasn't like do or die. I'm gonna, you know, grind until it's it's gone. That wasn't that wasn't my thing at all. I could have gone down there and done that, but my that's not that's not where my heart lay at all. I didn't see that being a long-term by long-term Bible plan too
0: much risk involved in that yeah gotcha um we're going to go back to the long-term plan and life after college but my last question kind of related to UK and I was thinking about this today um being a kid that comes from Florida to play for UK but you also had homegrown kids that were on the team such as like Rex Chapman I think Richie Farmer was there during your time um what was their like um what was their like the The love they receive from the fans like compared to maybe like guys that were from out of state. Did you see a difference in that? Does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm going to go a step further than that.
1: I'll go so far as to say to any young person who's thinking about going to college, if you can go to your home state school, if it makes any kind of sense. If you go, if you go out of state, you better be the man because the home state kids gets first and second look period. I mean, it's just the way that it is because you know, that that's the nature of the beast. When you, leave your, when you leave the confines of your state and go play someplace else and it's close between you and another guy, it's going to go to him. Yeah, it's not going to go to you. And the only exception to that would be if you have a unique relationship with the head coach. If, like, the head coach is your uncle or you, or he went to school with your dad, that makes it different. But if you're just another player, he's got two players, one kid from Florida and one kid from right here in Kentucky, a mile up the road. The kid from Kentucky a mile up the road is going to get first and second look. Y'all are close. And you're going to try to find a way to put him in the ballgame that's the again. That's not a Kentucky thing. That's the basketball. That's a sports thing right.
0: it is what it is. You know? Yeah. That's a good answer. Um, so you go through UK, you play ball for Sutton and Patino. Um, you uh, graduated. What are your, what are your first steps after graduating and um, playing for UK? Like what's your next move in life?
1: Um, my next move in life, I actually went to law school for a year. Part of that was that you know I wanted to see what it was about. I thought I never really saw myself being like a a, a lifelong lawyer, but I knew that you know that experience could I could utilize that and leverage that into something else. I didn't finish law school. That's The only thing I, ne- I never finished in life was was finishing law school. But I knew I wanted to do something uh, academic, something uh, esoteric, and that it would be away from sports. It would be away from you know a life where I made a living with my physicality. Yeah. You know, so again, law school was a good experience. I considered going to uh, business school and get an MBA. I have a, a business undergrad degree. But I was able to use you know, what I learned when I was in school to transition that into a, a life in finance. And I've been a financial advisor in, or, or some kind of financial services. It'll be 30 years this fall. that I've been doing some, something with finances, whether it be being an advisor. I was also in commercial lending for a while with several different uh, large banks here in town. So from that perspective, I've, I've, I've had a good life away from basketball.
0: One thing you've shared with me when whenever we've um, chatted, you you always talked about how you know when you first started off in business you didn't want to use the UK moniker, but then you slowly got got into that. Can you talk about that about about like you know that being one of the perks of being a former UK player? Man, you're you're delving deep into my
1: psyche, can <laughs> but I guess I'll, just mean you, know, I'll be transparent. But I was so I angry. At, yes, I was angry at basketball. I was angry at UK. But specifically, I was angry at my coach So I really felt like I had been treated very unfairly. Um, it doesn't really matter whether I was treated unfairly or not. I felt like I was treated unfairly, and it's as we all as we all know, all we have is our own unique our own unique perspective on the situation. So you know, I was like I said, I, I let the anger consume me for a long time. To the respect of, I went a good 10 years and didn't watch a game. Didn't even wear, I didn't even wear blue and white. I mean, I do now. I've got, I've gotten over that. I've grown and matured to the point where you know, I actually I'm, I'm on a couple different uh, boards at UK. I donate money back to the school, not at, not sports, but the academic programs at, at the school. Mm. You know, so I've come full circle from that from that perspective. But it was a long time there, camp, a good decade, where I had a very uh, negative uh, view of my home university. And my mother was instrumental in getting me to you know to look think long term from that perspective because I guess I've been out of school. Uh, seven or eight years or so when I started to have some success in the business community and the same coach who wouldn't play me you know came to me and wanted me to be the face of his recruitment when he went out to you know meet with you know black kids in Chicago or Atlanta or DC who you know outside looking in this is is not a state where a black kid from inner city says oh I want to go live in Kentucky no (laughs) I want to play for UK but you don't say I want to go live in Kentucky so he had he had so Rick had a selling job to do to the kids, and to the, especially to their parents and to their, you know, their, their teams around them, you know, as to why a kid would leave the D.C. area or why, you know, a kid would leave New York City and come to Kentucky. So the image problem there was, you know, how can a kid, you know, find some success outside of basketball? So the kid he wouldn't play, who became successful without him, became the face of that. And the funny part is that if you meet any of the kids that played for Rick during that time frame when he went to two out of, well, he won two championships, all those kids know me by face. You know why? Because he put together an entire recruiting package that had big pictures of me in my office yeah. <laughs> and talking about things that I'd done outside of basketball. You know, and that was his selling point yeah. to all the, to, to those kids, Anderson, all those kids that came after me. Uh, how he got them to come to UK was they said, "Hey, you can come if you come to Kentucky." And basketball doesn't work out. Look, we have a kid right here, looks just like you, that came here and from Florida and stayed and made a life for himself. But I did those things not because of him or the university, but in spite of them. Mm-hmm. My mom, my mom says, you know what? Don't let your bitterness uh, cost you opportunities and cost you a chance to have a better life for yourself. And I listened to her, and I allow him to go ahead and use my name and my likeness and develop those, like I said, relationships. And you know, by letting that anger go and just resolving that, hey, whatever happened in the past, I'm gonna let it stay in the past. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move forward. I'm gonna embrace the university. In turn, the university has embraced me because several years later, an opportunity opened up to where by, I do a lot of business now with the university on their uh, retirement platform. I have hundreds of clients who work at UK. So it's all come full circle now. You know, So by, like I said, by letting my anger go and by you know uh, uh, letting, I guess, that, that relationship grow between myself and between university. I've got myself, you know, back on track over the last, you know, two decades and my mom was right.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. That's, um, that's awesome. I know that, you know, letting go of that bitterness is probably super tough for you because you know, a, a, an athlete's career is very sensitive. So like <laughs> I've been married for six years and all the time, I'm going to do a podcast episode about letting go of the past here in the next few weeks but all the time I talk about how I didn't go division one because I was in high school. That was, that was like the, uh, that was a goal. No matter if I went to the school that scored, you know, that, that went zero and 32, I played division one. But right. uh, My wife still talks about, man, you just need to let that go. And like your life has been so much better, um, with the school that you went to. But, um, yeah, I say that, to say that an athlete's career is very sensitive. And so there are things that we think about that coaches may be said to us, players that we said to us that we hold on to, um, but my next pivot is, like, why do you think an athlete's career is so sensitive? Do you think it's because, like, it's something that we want to be known that we were good at, you know what I mean?
1: That's part of it. Uh, that's, that's a great question. I'm thinking about, you know, I want to answer that. I haven't, I haven't thought of it, you know, in yeah. quite that way. I mean, there's probably more than one right answer when it comes yeah. to that. You all know, have different motivations for wanting to be good. my motivation was I wanted to – Proved to myself to my father that I can do this. Like I said my father had a great college career, even though his his pro career was cut short. He, his name, he's still revered in our part of the, in Southern Alabama and North Florida. If you say his name, people know who he is. I mean, he's it's like he had, a, and when he was alive, he had a very big, he cast a very big shadow. And my whole thing was I want to measure up to you know my dad's you know career. I want I want to do better than my dad. You know, so again, everybody had some motivations. Even a suburban kid like myself still wanted to be good, not because I had to be good to make money, but because, like I said, my father had had such a successful career. I wanted to I wanted to do better than my dad. That's part of also part of why I left Florida. Had I stayed in Florida because his shadow was so big, I always would have been, you know, the son of blah, 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 blah. blah. Right. You know, and I wanted to go someplace and try to build my own legacy. And, And the funny part is I did that, not in sports, but outside of sports. I've done that. Because to the respect of my son, this is what's funny about how life works out. My son, who is, you know, top five all time, Lexington, is an all-time scoring, went to a college away from here. And now he lives in Florida now. So we actually switched places. My son lives in Florida because <laughs> he didn't want anybody to know him. And yeah. he stayed in Kentucky, always be Jackson Davis, son of Jonathan Davis. Yeah. Couldn't turn the corner. Somebody knowing who he was, because he looks just like me. He looks right. like me. He walks like me. <laughs> you know, so him have his own life, he had the lead, and guess where he went. He went back home. He went home yeah. to Florida because no one knows him there. Right. So I, I get it. I totally get it.
0: Uh, that's funny. That is that is hilarious. Yeah, I remember seeing you in the stands watching your watching your son play. Um, yeah. that's, and that's also funny how it comes full circle. Like I I remember you watching your son, and now I'm getting the chance to talk to and know you. Yeah. Uh, this is another deep question I wanted you to ask. Uh, um, I wanted to ask you. So we both work in the financial um, field, and usually. Um, every room that we go into, there's only a, you know, we are the minority. You know, I was just at a meeting today where I was the only person of color in the room. Can you talk about, you know, what it, what's it like being, you know, a black man in the financial industry and being one of few when you walk in these rooms?
1: That's a great question. I want to answer this. I want to put this question in half and answer it in two different ways. Number one is I need to go back in time to back when I started. You know, back in my day, young man, am kidding. But back when I started 30 years ago, <clears throat> the world was very different than it is right now. It's mm-hmm. funny how in some ways we've progressed, but in other ways, especially when it comes to the sensitivity of both Black people and white people about race and issues of race, we're more sensitive and things are much more volatile right now than they were 30 years ago when I started. Yeah. I mean, to the respect of, you know, other than one or two instances, my first... I don't know, six, 17 years in the business. I can't think of, I can't think of anything racial that happened. Maybe one or two sm- small, minor things. And, you know, also at the time I was married to a girl who happens to be white. And, you know, I think the reason why we were successful if we stayed together, married so long, we were married 22 years. Part of the reason we are married so long and one of the reasons why our marriage was so successful was because, as corny as this sounds, within our relationship, race was never really an issue. Right. I mean, she grew up with hippie parents who were not racist, I grew up with you know, affluence of urban parents who, even though they grew up in a deep South, they didn't want to poison my brother and I with the bitterness of the past. Yeah. So I didn't grow up in a household where my parents were walking around you know, cursing you know, white people out or you know, negative towards what... I grew up in a household where you just, just be who you are. Mm-hmm. You know? Be who you are, everything will be fine. So when I met you know, my, my former wife, both of us came together with very non-racial attitudes about the world. We just saw each other as two people. It wasn't like I married a black, white woman. I just married a woman with me be white, yeah. and, and vice versa. So uh, again, I, and I lived in communities and lived in in, in, in areas and, and had a, a world around me that allowed it to be okay. Like I said, my community back home, my parents were well respected. Nobody ever bothered me. I came to Kentucky because I played basketball for UK. Again, a bubble around me. Yeah, I could do whatever I want to do, to, other than you know rob somebody. I mean, right. you play basketball for UK, you live in Fayette County. Really, anywhere in Kentucky, your your life is different than what the average black person's life is going to be like, or the average black man's life is going to be like. Mm-hmm. So, from that perspective, no one ever said anything to me directly. A few minor, small things here and there, but again, not not as not a big deal then. Now, having said all that, today the world has become a lot more, I guess, sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Even though you know, like I said, we've, we've progressed in some ways, but other ways we have regressed, or maybe even more correctly, some things have been uncovered or re- been revealed they have always maybe been there on the surface, but now it's right, like right there on, right there on top of the surface. So it's a little bit different now. Uh, now I'm much more conscious, let me get to your point here. I'm much more conscious of the fact that when I walk into a room, I am a lot of times, you know, at, at, when we're working at moving on a high level, I'm oftentimes the only African-American, the only black person in the room. I'm conscious of that, but I'm also conscious of trying to reach back and trying to develop You know, younger African Americans to you know walk behind me and to be in those rooms and or at least at least uh, train and be positioned so that when the turn when when their turn comes they're prepared to be successful. It's one thing to get to the room; it's something else to be successful when you get to the room. Be prepared for and get to the room. So it's important. So that's why I try to uh, being very very intentional about getting more blacks, getting more people that look like us into this arena, into financial services and, and, and into banking because it's, it's a great place to be. But, but the thing is, is that if you never had anybody in your life to represent that, you don't understand that that's something that you actually actually can do and be successful at. It.
0: Yeah. When I, whenever I've spoken at middle and high schools, you know, they would always bring me in for um, a career day and the students, they would, you know, tell me what they wanted to be in life. But a lot of them, all they did was just read, the top 10 highest paying jobs and say that that's what they want to be. If, you know, if, if, if they didn't make it to the NFL or the, um, professional basketball league. Um, but no one ever mentions a career in financial services, which is crazy because it's like, this is a very lucrative career. And, you know, you can literally put in a lot of, you know, front work and then kind of, you know, let the business take care of itself on the back end, right. Um, so that's another reason why I wanted to have you on as well as to talk about like your career in the financial services industry and how you've been a black representation, um, you know, for for people that work in the financial industry and have and they have a successful career and has been doing it for over 30 years. So you're a seasoned veteran and just, you know, all the little nuggets that you've picked up in business. Um, and with that, you know, what are some key takeaways that you've learned you know, from basketball and business, you know, some, some things you've learned from sports that applies to, um, business.
1: It's funny you mentioned that I've actually thought about doing like a book or writing something about parallels between, you know, athletic success or basketball and, you know, being successful in business. There are lots of parallels and lots of things that translate if you mm-hmm. allow them, you know, I mean, practice. I mean, you, you're in the union space, you know, you have to, you have to practice and really understand, the different investments that are out there so that when you sit down with a client that you've done it so much that you can do it reflexively. You're not stumbling and bumbling and you're unsure of yourself as to how this thing works. You have to practice, 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 you know, and and get that thing right. Um, Going going with your off hand, you know, this too, from basketball, I mean, if you're right-handed, you need to be able to use your left hand sometimes too. Maybe it won't be as strong as your right hand, but if you can use both hands, either you're handling the basketball or use both hands, you know, making layups, you know, that's important. All, another thing, too, that, that uh, you know, like what we'll, we'll talk about, too, is that, you know, doing layups at full speed. Too often in practice, we do our layups at half speed. But when you win a game, you're going full speed. So if you don't practice at full speed, you know, layups or making a jump shot, the shot you take in a game is different than the one you practice. So what you do in practice, it's got to be get, what's got to be what we call game speed talk. Kentucky. You're always going to be going game speed when you are practicing. Anything else is not. It's like a waste of time. It's better not doing anything at all than to do it at a different speed because the speed that you're going, whatever speed that is, it has to be game speed. And that's what translates. So I think what made me successful early is that I understood those basic concepts about, you know, breaking down things that are very complicated down to their component parts and understanding them at such a level so that, oh, my father told me this once when I was a kid. And it stuck with me. He said, he asked me, what's the difference between a professional and an amateur? And the answer is, an amateur will practice until he, you know, gets it right. But a professional will practice until he can't get it wrong. I mean, you get to a point, can can't get it wrong, then you get to a point where you can pop in your office, you know, for for an hour and a half and make twenty five thousand dollars and then go home because you put the legwork in to make that transition. You know, you're able to do that. That don't happen your first five years in the business, but after you've been in the business for a while. Those are the camp. Kind of, that's
0: that's how your day goes. Yeah, and, and another thing that I just thought about as well, and something that helped me, is uh, keep it simple, right? Like in the game, yeah. you want to make like as a as a when I play basketball, I want to make the game as simple and easy as possible. I'm not trying to right. be flashy. I'm gonna put myself in different positions where I can be successful, whether that's closer to the basket, spotting up as well. But when I was younger. I wanted to be the guy that dribbled down the court and you know do ten dribble moves, step back like Steph. Right. You know, scrap the playbook. Let's go. You know, one four I saw I, I, <laughs> Yeah, call your, call your own number. Call your own jersey. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, as I've gotten older, I want to keep the game simple. And so I All think right. about my first time in the financial industry. I made everything complicated because I wanted to appear smart. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, I would have clients gloss over because I wanted to talk about standard deviation and, you know, the efficient frontier and all these other, you know, high level terms where they had no idea what I was talking about. But once I started to keep the process simple, then that's when, you know, the flourishing on the back end comes from just keeping it simple, not trying to be overcomplicated. Um,
1: Everything you said is correct because you're right. If you need to know those things about standard deviation, but your client doesn't want or need to know those things goes back to practicing something a lot of people don't really understand you know you know where I played at Kentucky we mostly people would think that you know those guys that are that big and that fast will work on a lot of flashy stuff alley-oops and all kinds no don't we worked on we mostly worked on doing layups at full speed we had yeah. several drills that were basically full speed layup drills we called it 85 and 2 or 95 and 2 where we line up and try to do 95 layups in two minutes, yeah. which is absolutely insane when you think about it. The record was like 126, which the, the team that uh, won this, the Derrick Anderson team, that team that were, they should have won a championship that year, mm. that was the most loaded athletic team we've ever had in U.K. But uh, we've worked on basic, simple stuff, like, say, full-speed layups, passing at an angle, you know, boxing out. The whole practice was nothing but, like, basic first-grade stuff. It wasn't complicated stuff, but we took those basic – Components, and we're able to put that together and make things that looked complicated to the outside person. But the practices themselves, working on simple block, blocking and tackling, you call it football. The best football teams are good at two things: they're good at blocking and they're good at tackling. Yeah. That's like ninety-five percent of it. And yeah. In basketball, if you can handle the basketball and make layups at full speed, you can beat a whole lot of people. Yeah. Full speed layups. You think how I many layups are blown in the game? You blow through layups, you lost the game. That's the whole game. If you make all your layups. Make all your layups, you'll beat a whole lot of teams you shouldn't beat. A whole lot of teams.
0: And even in the business world, going on, your two things, the first things that popped up to me were if you can solve a problem and um, bring some um, value, you know. Those, that's your layup.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's your layups. You solve a problem and bring some value. That's a full speed layup. Now you're right there. Now you got a person interested in doing business with you now. You might not get the business, but you probably will. At the very least, you're in position now to do business with this person because you solved the problem. You brought something to the table. That's just a layup because you were prepared to make that layup.
0: Yeah, and you're dropping nuggets. This is – so as we kind of wrap up, this is going to probably be the most important questions i ask you, but I wanted to talk a little bit about parenting. Um, Like I said, I used to see you at the games watching your son, and I think your daughter, was she like Miss Kentucky or something like that? Yeah, Uh 2015, Miss Kentucky. Yeah, and so, you know, you've talked about the influence your parents had on you. And then to also raise and have, you know, your kids be successful in their own right. Talk about like what you took from your parents and how you tried to, you know, implement that with your kids, but also expand on, you know, maybe what they didn't do. Not not what they didn't do, but how you tried to make what they did maybe a little bit better and, and such. But also like let your kids figure out what they want to do and all that, you know, parenting stuff. Yes.
1: I think the thing my parents did the best job of that I really tried to pass on to like I said my kids were growing up was to find ways to put my kids in a position to be successful give them the tools to be successful. you know uh, they did a great my parents did a great job of that. I always felt like I was never going to go into a situation where I didn't have the right tools. I might have to figure out how to use the tools myself. I'll give you a good example. We had a, we had a home computer in our house cam in 82. Computers back then didn't do anything at all so yeah. we had one. My dad knew the computers were the future. So I grew up with a computer in my house in the early 80s when nobody had one. So I've always had, I've always had computers around, you know? So those, that's a little thing that maybe everybody can't do all those things. But like I said, I, I knew that trying to make sure that my kids had all the tools for success around them uh, was very important. Something my parents, I won't say could have done better, but they were young when they got married. Something that I, that I felt was lacking that my parents did not do with me I try to do with my kids I try to spend more time with them mm-hmm. with those tools you know my parents were busy making a living and you know doing their own thing they were busy you know but I tried to well let me rephrase that I didn't try to I actually did when my son decided when we want to get serious about basketball <clears throat> excuse me he actually was a, there's a there's a rule in Fayette County called the Jackson Davis rule Jackson Davis rule says you cannot play high school sports you know, uh, until you actually are in high school. My son was a varsity starter in seventh grade.
0: Yeah. You can't do that.
1: In that. County. He's the last one. He's yeah. the last one. It's a advanced rule. They passed the rule. You can't do that. But long story short, when he became a varsity starter at Lafayette as a seventh grader, I shut my practice down. I was done at three o'clock so I can be at practice. And I was assistant coach for the next six years. So that's six years. We, I mean, from a financial standpoint, we did without some things. I'm not gonna say we did without some things. I could have made more money. I guess it's more probably more correct. I could have made a lot more money because most people don't get off work until you know after three. Yeah. I shut my I shut my office door at three. I was to practice at three thirty every day for six years. You know, my dad didn't didn't, didn't shut his shut his office door down at three o'clock and come spend that kind of time with me. But I really wanted I wanted to be there. I wanted to experience all those little tiny moments that now. That you know, my son's gone and my kids are gone. I still got those memories, and Candy, I'm telling you, you cannot take. There's no price I would I would pay that you couldn't pay me. You couldn't pay me not to have those memories that, that, I, that I was able to get from that. As far as making money, you can always make money later. I mean, money's always going to be there. This is America; there's always be opportunities to you know to improve yourself from a financial standpoint. But you can never get back the time you did not spend with your kids in the formative years. You know, so I was there every day, every single day for six years of my son. And I would trade it for the whole world, wouldn't
0: trade it. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at in life. Like, you know, I have four young kids and, you know, as I've been, you know, decently successful early in my career, you know, like I'm at a place where I really don't want to take that next step because I don't want to sacrifice the time, the stress away from my family. Like I want to be as present as I can. Um, And, you know, what's funny is a lot of people with kids, you know, they don't really understand that because- they, it, you know, maybe it's our culture in our society where it's always about more and more and more. But like, I'm actually doing the opposite of like wanting to spend more time at home. You know, even, even if that means yeah. I work from home you know, a couple of days a week just to be home. Like I want yeah. to spend that time with my kids. And I love like I was thinking about this the other day because I was working from home. You know, it's like eight, eight o'clock, eight thirty. You know, usually people are out on the road driving, you know, to work. And I'm, you know, holding my son on the couch watching yeah. TV, just talking about you know the dreams he had the night before you know what i mean um man i really appreciate you mentioning that because i feel like that's exactly where i am right now in my in my uh career but I, i've never met anyone that also was that was also at that point as well i would trade place with you in the heartbeat i mean in many days
1: seriously. i mean I, I i live in the house now that I, my kids grew up in but now it's just me yeah. And there are many days that I wish that one more day I can go back to where that time where, you know, they're in their rooms and they're making too much noise, you know, and you know, now it's just me and the house is quiet, but I would, I would not trade it for all the experience I had being there with them present all the time. There's no price you can put on that. There's not. Even yeah. those days with driving you crazy, you'll long for that day one day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's what that's what me and my wife always say, because they do grow up so fast. My oldest is in middle school, and I can't believe how fast that's, you know, that has come. And just like you said, you're with your son for six years. I mean, that six years flies by quick. And now he's off to college and all that other kind of stuff.
1: He's been gone for years. It went by so fast. At the time, like I said, it's not going to last forever. But now he's been gone longer than the time I spent with him. He's been gone since 2014 and went to college. Yeah. Almost a decade gone.
0: Yeah. All right, I'm yeah. a, I'm going to mention something cheesy that I was watching last night. Um and I'm bringing this up cuz I think you recently had grandchildren, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So,
0: here's the scenario. Me and my wife are watching this show and um the the mom hasn't talked hasn't spoken to the son in years. They had a falling out, right? So the son shows up to his mom unexpectedly, but he brings like he's trying to reconcile, but he brings his wife and grandchildren that she's never met. And so the mom is all upset and she can't handle it. And so she's like, so she's going, she's trying to walk past the family, but then the grandson steps in front of her and says, grandma, don't go. And she's looking down at him and he's looking up at her. It was a, it was a very touching scene and I cried. Yeah. But in that moment I thought about what happens when my kids have kids. So Man. talk about what's that like for you? Like watching your kids have kids. And now about I've got the one
1: grand baby. Yeah, about I've got one grandbaby. He is. 13 months now. As a matter of fact, I kept it yesterday because even though, you know, my kids are grown, I still want to, you know, I want to be involved in my grandkids' lives. So my daughter called me. Daughter texted me Monday night at like nine. And he says, Dad lost my babysitter for tomorrow. Can you watch, can you, watch you know, the baby? It's like, yeah. So I moved my schedule around. I babysat my grandson from 9.30 to noon uh, yesterday.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Great experience. like just, slept just in my lap almost the entire time. Yeah. But my point is this, is you're going to, and I don't mean, this is no disrespect to my children. I love my grandkids more than I love my kids. <laughs> I'm I said the quiet part out loud, can You're going to love your grandkids more than you oh love your own goodness. kids. As much as you love your kids, you're going to love your grandkids even more than that. You will, you just do.
0: Yeah, you, so like every do. like every friend and yeah. every friend I have says that they feel like their parents love the grandkids more than more than They them. do. They, but you're They grand, won't tell the kids. that they yeah, do. But you're the are more. So, a little bit more. It's so yeah. funny because you're the first person to ever say it out loud. So, what's the reason? What's the reason why that is?
1: You don't want to hurt your kids' feelings. My kids won't see this video. They won't, they won't see this. But just between me and you, yeah. I love my grandkids more than I love my kids.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> hey, hey, Jonathan, I really appreciate you uh, yeah, being man. on here with me. This is, this is probably the most fun conversation I had. And I appreciate you being open and honest um something i stole from you is uh, there needs to be a pensacola you know florida documentary because you were dropping a bunch of hall of famers and it seemed like a talent hotbed so that sounds like there needs to be like a two-part 30 for 30 on all the talent that was there and,
1: uh, i forgot to tell you one thing about the seven high schools in, in pensacola of the seven high schools six of them were national champs in football over a 12-year period wow Six, not state champions, national champions. That's yeah. absolutely insane.
0: Yeah. One town. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is, that is insane. Um. So yeah, I need to, I need to submit that uh documentary request to ESPN. So yeah, for sure. I'll Somebody, slide you, do. I'll slide you something on the back end. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> no, but uh, and even. Even before our conversation, I was thinking about how did I how did I meet Jonathan? And I think it's from LinkedIn. I think I sent because when I was early in my career, yeah, any yeah. any anyone that did financial services, I just reached out to him to hopefully have a conversation and try to And I'm, I'm quick up. to encourage him too. I mean, like I said,
1: I want, I want representation in this business. It's a great, it's a great business that you found, but there should be more of us doing this. There really should be. There's a need for it. The people that need they need uh to see people like us doing this, you know. So I'm intentional about that
0: absolutely well thank you for your time again and everyone this is uh between the game and life thanks jonathan thank you Cam. have a good day you too.